We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org slash live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. We bid you good morning and welcome to Fellowship Bible Church this morning. So happy to see you. Sharon, I see you out there. Wonderful. Very good. You're sitting next to some new friends. You be a good friend now. Oh, she's, she drinks coffee too. <laughs> Guilt by association. <laughs> is that what that is? <laughs> well, it's good to see you this morning. God bless you all. Thank you for coming. Scripture reading this morning is found in Ezekiel and the 30th chapter. If you'd turn there, please. After we read the scripture, then we'll invite the men to come up for the offering, and uh, JL will share our music ministry again today. We'll be blessed by that. But first, the word of God. The word of the Lord came to me again, saying, this is chapter 30, verse number 2 now, Son of man, prophesy and say, thus says the Lord God, wail, woe to the day, for the day is near, even the day of the Lord is near. It will be a day of clouds, the time of the Gentiles. The sword shall come upon Egypt, and great anguish shall be in Ethiopia. When the slain fall in Egypt, and they take away her wealth, and her foundations are broken down. Ethiopia, Libya, Lydia, all the mingled people, Chub, and the men of the lands who are allied shall fall with them by the sword. Thus says the Lord, those who uphold Egypt shall fall and the pride of her power shall come down. From Migdol to Syene, those within her shall fall by the sword, says the Lord God. They shall be desolate in the midst of the desolate countries, and her cities shall be in the midst of the cities that are laid waste. Then they will know that I am the Lord, when I have set a fire in Egypt, and all her helpers are destroyed. On that day, messengers shall go forth from me in ships, to make the careless Ethiopians afraid, and great anguish shall come upon them, as on the day of Egypt. For indeed, it is coming. Thus says the Lord God, I will also make a multitude of Egypt to cease by the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. He and his people with him, the most terrible of the nations, shall be brought to destroy the land. They shall draw their swords against Egypt, and fill the land with the slain. I will make the rivers dry and sell the land into the hand of the wicked. I will make the land waste and all that is in it by the hand of aliens. I, the Lord, have spoken. Thus says the Lord God, I will also destroy the idols and cause the images to cease from Noph. There shall no longer be princes from the land of Egypt. I will put fear in the land of Egypt. I will make Pathros desolate, set fire to Zoan, and execute judgments in No. I will pour my fury on Sin, the strength of Egypt. That's a place name, by the way. I will cut off the multitude of No and set a fire in Egypt. Sin shall have great pain. No shall be split open, and Noph shall be in distress daily. The young men of Avin and Pi Beseth shall fall by the sword, and these cities shall go into captivity. And Tehephenes, the day, I'm sorry, at Tehephenes, the day shall also be darkened when I break the yokes of Egypt there, and her arrogant strength shall cease in her. As for her, a cloud shall cover her, and her daughters shall go into captivity. Thus I will execute judgments on Egypt, then they shall know that I am the Lord. You can obviously place this in history around the time of Nebuchadnezzar, 605 down to five, I don't remember the date, you know, 60s maybe, uh, somewhere in there. Uh, That would be the time in history when this was occurring. Verse 20, And it came to pass in the eleventh year, in the first month, on the seventh day of the month, 
that the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, I have broken the arm of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and see, it has not been bandaged for healing, nor a splint put on it, put on to bind it, to make it strong enough to hold a sword. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, surely I am against Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and will break his arms, both the strong one and the one that was broken, and I will make the sword fall out of his hand. I will scatter the Egyptians among the nations and disperse them throughout the countries. I will strengthen the arms of the king of Babylon and put my sword in his hand, but I will break Pharaoh's arms and he will groan before him with the groanings of a mortally wounded man. Thus I will strengthen the arms of the king of Babylon, but the arms of Pharaoh shall fall down. They shall know that I am the Lord when I put my sword into the hand of the king of Babylon and he stretches it out against the land of Egypt. I will scatter the Egyptians among the nations and disperse them throughout the countries. Then they shall know that I am the Lord. That is indeed the case. The Lord does all these things. Notice how he uses nations that are uh, no holy places, holy people to do his service. Amen. We're going to turn our Bibles back to Philippians again, chapter 3. And I puzzled over this as I alluded to last time, what I was going to do for today. But here's what I thought. I wanted to go over that section again from a different perspective that we looked at last week. And uh, a couple of reasons for that. Uh, One uh, kind of easy one is Paul says in verse 1, for me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. So to go over things again is not a problem. In fact, it's uh, very useful the way that you really learn something is to go over it and over it and over it again. And the second thing is that as I look, normally when I would take a passage of this length, verses 4 through 11, I probably would take it in two or three pieces. And I just felt like taking the whole chunk together was good in that it held together as one unit, but it was just too much. There's more there to be said. So what I'd like to do is Look at it from a different angle today, not, not a super different angle. I mean, there's only, only so many different angles you can look at the scriptures. You're going to come up with the similar conclusions if, you are, if you're faithful to the word. But let's do this again today and, and just take a, a careful look at it. Maybe the Lord wants you to consider your own spiritual life. I've titled the message today, Knowing Christ. Knowing Christ. Same passage as last week, different emphasis. The highest priority for every single human being on this planet, and for you here today, your highest priority is to know Christ. Your highest priority is to know Christ. Now, if you're reading the passage and you are the studious type, I want you to take note of five terms that are here. One, confidence. Two, righteousness. Three, gain four, loss, and five, of course, Christ. Each of these terms is used repetitively in in the first part of Philippians chapter 3 and tip us off to the big ideas that are here. When you're doing Bible study, if you were to open up your Bible and say, what does this passage teach? One of the tools that you use in observing the passage is to look at what are the key words, verbs, repeated terms, Uh, and maybe when you're doing that, print it out or in your Bible, circle those key terms and and really kind of go to school on it because that's how you learn what's there. When you notice gain and loss and confidence and Christ and and, uh, righteousness, you say, wow, there is some meaty stuff here. And in fact, that is the case. In this autobiographical section of Philippians, we learn that What Paul wants more than anything else, here's your highest priority, is to know Christ and everything that Christ is and offers to him. Paul is a good example for us. In fact, in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 1, he says, I want you to follow me or imitate me as I imitate Christ. In other words, I'm following him, you follow me. He was an inspired, if you will, example, if I could use that term a little out of its biblical context an inspired example. Paul urges believers to imitate him. So let's look at what happened in his religious thinking and ask God to help us to have the same kind of desires that Paul did in 
We see in Philippians 3, 4, he says, Though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, all those. We'll go over those in just a moment. He's saying, I have a long religious resume with the utmost, the top-notch qualifications. I'm in the 99th percentile of candidates before God who would be able to say, God, look at me. Aren't I something special? You know, sweep me right into heaven. Uh Uh-uh, Paul says. That was his former confidence in the flesh. He had trust in himself. He was depending, in essence, upon himself. And he lists these qualifications. You know, he says, I was circumcised the eighth day, just like the Jews are supposed to be, uh, according to the law. Today, circumcision is almost never done on the eighth day. Maybe for Jewish boys it is, but for uh, boys who are circumcised in the hospital, it's done on the first or second day. Um, This was the key qualification at issue. Remember, he was criticizing the Judaizers who were saying, You've got to be circumcised and you've got to follow the law of Moses if you want to be a Christian. And he is attacking that. Acts 15 dealt with that. Galatians, almost the whole book deals with that, especially chapter 2. And uh, he he says, look, if, if that's a qualification, I've got the real deal. I have the mark on my body of faithfulness to the Abrahamic covenant and to the God of the covenant I was circumcised just as the law required. He says, secondly, I am an Israelite. I'm an Israelite. If anybody could boast in their lineage, I could, he says. Notice that he was not a proselyte. You know what that means? He was not a convert to Judaism. He was the original genuine article, not a a second, um, you know, kind of once removed cousin of of, Israel. of Israel. And then it says, thirdly, this is all in verse number uh, five. He says, of the tribe of Benjamin. Now, this was one of the tribes who stayed faithful to the southern kingdom in, with Judah, uh, with David. Now, you know, lest you think, well, that's a really special thing, just give you a caution. Out of the tribe of Benjamin came King Saul, who was you know, that's a little bit of a dubious distinction, can I say. <laughs> um, and also, if you, find, if you hunt around, you'll find out that Shimei, the guy who was hurling curses at David as he left Jerusalem and Absalom was revolting against him, he was a Benjamite as well. So just being a Benjamite doesn't mean, you know, you're all, you know, perfect, you know, like an angel. It was not a special pure tribe, but it was one of the 12 tribes of Israel uh, and uh, it was important for him to mention this. He was faithful. He was not, you know, a tribe of Naphtali that went off into idolatry and, and didn't follow God anymore. It says then he was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. Despite living outside of Israel for some part of his life, remember he lived in Tarsus in Cilicia. He was brought up there, but studied at the feet of Gamaliel. Uh, no doubt in Jerusalem or its environs. He maintained, however, all of the Jewish customs, all of the practices, all the culture, all the religion, and he had pure Jewish blood. He was, he was an Israelite of Israelites. That, that duplication of words just emphasizes what he's saying. Um, we do that too, don't we? Uh, somebody who is you know, something of something. He's, he's the elite of the elite. He's the cream of the crop. That's what he's saying. Fifthly, he was a Pharisee. He said so, and in fact, he used that to his advantage at one point in his trials when he said, look, I'm a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. I'm, I'm here for the hope and the re- of the resurrection of the dead. And well, that set them all in an uproar because the other party, the Sadducees, don't believe in the resurrection of the dead. But, so he was basically a fundamentalist. He was a conservative in his religious observance. In fact, he was a conservative to the point of legalism. He was a real-life legalist. I don't don't like at all how that word is thrown around today, even by evangelicals. Legalism, legalist. The real kind of legalist is the one who thinks by keeping a law before God, he earns favor with God in order to gain salvation. Somebody who believes that they shouldn't do some practice like they shouldn't drink alcohol. 
that doesn't make them a legalist. That makes them somebody who has thought about the issue, hopefully is expressing a wisdom position on it, and says, I'm going to stay away from that because you know, wine is a mocker and strong drink is raging and all that. I don't want to go down that path and the associations of it and everything. That doesn't make one a legalist. Now, if you do stuff like Paul was doing and say, if I do that, you know, I'm a shoe-in for heaven. That's legalism. That's what Paul was at this time. So most people today who level the charge of legalism don't understand the biblical meaning of it. But... I'll get off of that soapbox and move on to number six. Paul said, I was zealous. In fact, zealous to the point of killing other people. If anything touched his religion, he touched it. Christianity was a threat, so he became a threat to it. That's how zealous he was. And then finally, In verse number 6, it says, so that was concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness righteousness which is in the law, blameless. Now listen, we do not, we cannot believe that Paul was blameless in the ultimate sense, right? All have sinned, all have fallen short of the glory of God, there is none righteous, no, not one. Uh, Everyone goes astray from the womb, speaking lies, conceived in sin, Everybody is a sinner. If you don't think you're a sinner, you need to check your pride because that's a sin right there, exactly. But he's saying, in a true sense, I was blameless in the law like many of you would be able to say today, I'm blameless in regard to the law of, you know, Ann Arbor and Michigan and all, you know, you've, you've dealt with, you know, your your parking tickets, and you haven't robbed any banks, and there's no outstanding felony warrants against you. <laughs> you you're blameless in terms of the law, right? Okay, very good. And that's what Paul was saying. Externally, you looked at him and you would say, man, this guy has it all together. I mean, he's the real deal. He's observant. He's religious. Uh, he loves God, so to speak. You know, um, He's done all the things that he's supposed to be doing, but he was not able to say that about his heart. I was not blameless in my heart before God. As he later admits in Romans chapter 7, I have these desires, the things I desire, I, I'm not doing, and the things that I... He just, he's, he's beside himself. It's a tough situation. He's realized what happened when he came to Christ was he realized how bad he was. He used to think he was pretty good, but then he realized how bad he was. So... Righteousness. Today, many people can seem outwardly righteous, but their heart is not seen by anyone but God. You don't, you don't fool him. Never fool God. He knows. You know, some men's sins are evident before, and others only, only come out later at the judgment. But it will come. It will come out eventually. Paul then says, look, I had all this confidence. I had this resume, you know. You ever typed a resume? and you've got it all perfectly formatted, and it looks so nice. That's what his was. And then he realized, it's all worthless. So he found a new confidence, not a confidence in the flesh, but a confidence in Christ. What things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he listed seven items that he was very proud of. And then he says in verse 7, but there's an eighth actually, what things were gain. And uh, verse 8, yet indeed I count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. All of that stuff and more goes out the window. Paul has this sweeping statement. and, And that's what the righteousness of Christ does. It does wash away your attempts to be right with God. First of all, then, in his newfound confidence, he has a major change of thinking on the value of his resume. The value of his resume. Uh, He considers these things to be worthless. Notice that it was Paul's consideration of those items that changed and moved them from the gain column to the loss column. I'm saying it 
that for this reason. Not all of those things were actually discarded. He couldn't change the fact that he was a Benjamite, an Israelite, a Hebrew, uh, what blood he had coursing through his veins. He couldn't change how tall he was. He couldn't change. There's immutable characteristics of a human that cannot be changed. He couldn't change his circumcision. He couldn't change his ethnic background. He couldn't eliminate those things. But as far as now, there's, of course, some things could change, like persecuting the church. That, that ought to change. So, and, and pursuing a legalistic righteousness, that, that should change. But I want you to recognize that it was his consideration of the value of those things that was changing. And there were certain things in the bucket that he couldn't change that were, he stuck with those, but he doesn't consider them of value before God. Other things in this, in this kind of other category are things that he had to get rid of. A difficulty that I found with people over the years is they don't know which bucket to put something into. Is it in the immutable characteristics bucket or is it in the bucket of things that I have to get rid of? It most often happens this way. Somebody says they have a certain characteristic and it's usually the characteristic that probably God is working on them the most. Their pride or their, I don't know, loquaciousness or their, you know, something. And they say, well, that's just how I am. They put it over here in the immutable bucket. I say, wait a minute, God is working to make you into a different kind of person. You need to consider that thing that you think is immutable as mutable. God wants to change your pride, your outburst of wrath, your you know, speaking too much out of turn, or your disrespect, or your whatever it is. You know what it is. You're thinking maybe about some characteristic that you're children or your spouse bring out in you. You know why they bring it out? Because it's in you, (laughs) right? Yeah, that's right. So you have to make sure that you're not miscategorizing things and saying, well, yeah, just whatever. I just have to live with it. That's just me. Paul recognized that he considered certain things. I can't get rid of my Israelite heritage. I can't get rid of my circumcision, but I sure can consider it differently than I did before. What changed is he no longer considered these things as grounds of dependence or trust that he would be all right with God. For him, this was an earthquake and a tsunami. The earthquake shook him, and the tsunami came and washed away all of that trust that he had in the Lord, in his works before the Lord up until this point. He counted the things as worthless. Uh, he looked at them side by side with Christ and saw that they, were, they paled in comparison. They looked good, but now they don't look so good. And so it is with all who come to faith in Christ, all of us. You transfer your dependence from yourself to Christ. You change your thinking about sin and about God. You realize your rebellion against God and your need to be delivered from that rebellion. You know, you realize if you don't believe in Christ, you are in a state, a standing state of rebellion against God right now. And in fact, John 3 says, the wrath of God abides on you. That's that's the state you're in, and that's the wrath you're under. You realize you're headed for eternal death apart from God, and you change your thinking about eternal life and heaven. When When you shift like Paul did, when that earthquake comes, that tsunami comes, you realize that Christ is the Son of God, that He's the Lord, that he died for you, and that you need to change your loyalty to him. Yes, in fact, he was resurrected from the dead, as we'll celebrate in a few weeks. You realize when that shift comes of your thinking that Christ loved you and gave himself for you. That sacrifice is worthy of our every respect, of our every honor, of our every belief, of our every acceptance. Paul is coming to the point in the passage where he's going to say that knowing Christ is far better than anything else in the world. And he wants to gain Christ. You see that in verse number 8. Yet, indeed, I count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. That's all that stuff that he threw out. 
and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. So in this revolution of his thinking, he had a major change on the value of his resume. He wanted to know and gain Christ, not have his own thing. Secondly, he had a major change in understanding of how God accepts a person. To be accepted by God, you have to be found in Christ with his righteousness. When God looks at a person, where does he find him or her? In Adam or in Christ? Where are you? In what, in what category are you? A Christian is a person who, having exercised repentance and faith, has been placed into Christ in a very special relationship. When God looks at that person, he sees him in Christ. Otherwise, the person is unsaved in Adam, which effectively means they're on the devil's side of the equation. A key part of being placed in Christ is that your sins are forgiven. Your account with God is credited with righteousness. We looked at that this morning with justification. You're made right with God. This is the answer to the age-old question asked by Job in Job 9.24. How can a man be right before God? How can a man be right before God? If your highest priority right now is not knowing Christ, then may I suggest that your highest priority should be trying to figure out the answer to the question, how can a man be right before God, and recognizing that you're not right before him unless you're in Christ. Your sin, when you come to Christ, is no longer an issue that prevents God from establishing or maintaining a relationship with you. But before Christ, your sin, Isaiah 59, 7, I think it is, says has created a separation between you and your God. It is a brick wall that is impenetrable except by Jesus Christ. You, when you come to faith in Christ, are, as it were, stamped, maybe your legal record we could think of, stamped with made right before God. Now, ongoing sin, ongoing sin is still a problem, but that's addressed by confession. Genuine confession takes care of that before God. Paul is concerned about this. I mean, Good on Paul that he's concerned about how to be right with God. And he is so in tune with the Jewish mindset that he could say in like Romans 10, 4, Christ is the end of the law to achieve righteousness. You look at Jesus, that's the end of trying to achieve righteousness by the law. He knows that they're, they're going about trying to establish their own righteousness, not having submitted themselves to the righteousness of God by faith in Christ. And he's trying to teach that so that we get it as well. In a way, this is kind of an issue of submission. Are you going to think that you're hot stuff, that you're okay, that you don't need to listen to God, or are you going to say, look, uh, I'm, I'm nothing. I'm nothing. I need to be saved. I need someone else to rescue me. Um, there's no shame in that, my friends. The shame is in thinking that you're going to get by your whole life, and into eternity by rejecting God's way of salvation. Don't refuse to submit to the righteousness of God in Christ. Don't say, I can do it all by myself. I think I can, I think I can, I think I can, is kind of a mantra of the world, but it doesn't work when it comes to eternal salvation. You cannot achieve real righteousness by keeping the law. The law is, uh, is a, point, a, a thing that points out sin. It does not make anyone righteous. So Paul speaks very humbly, and he says, I want to be found in him. Verse number 9 is where we've been. Be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. Someone else's righteousness applied to me. He wanted to persist and be in this condition of being found in Christ his whole life and then at the final judgment. We sing a song that has the reflection of this idea. When he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him, Paul wants to be found in him, oh, may I then in him be found. It's, it's expressing not an uncertainty, which is why I feel comfortable with singing it, but a, a, a humility before God. I don't want to 
mess up my life. I don't want to be disqualified. I don't want to be like, you know, walking away from God and him chasing after me or something like that. I want to be in him. Now, we know we can also sing it in a way in which we express confidence that, you know, then I shall in him be found. They're emphasizing the idea of God's preservation of the saints. But the way that it's written, I think, is more focused on the perseverance, that is the continuance, that's all that word means, the continuance of the saints in their walk with God. Being found this way will demonstrate that we are real disciples of Jesus Christ. Thirdly, Paul says, when this earthquake and tsunami happened, he had a major change in his priorities, and that top priority again is what? Knowing Christ. Not the law. He doesn't want to know the law. He wants more than an intellectual knowledge, but a personal friendship, family kind of relationship with Christ. Now listen to this quote. This, was, this put it very well, I thought. Homer Kent wrote it this way. For Paul, the knowledge of Christ Jesus as his Lord meant intimate communion with Christ that began at his conversion and had been his experience all the years since then. It was not limited to the past, but was a growing relationship in which, this is the, no, the knowledge of Christ, a growing relationship in which there was a blessed enjoyment in the present and the challenge and excitement of increasing comprehension of Christ in personal fellowship. Now, he says, although at regeneration a person receives Christ, this is only the beginning of his discovery of what riches this entails. In Christ, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden, but to search them out and appropriate them requires a lifetime in Christ. That's what it means to know him. It's the intimate communion with Christ. And if you're not seeking, let me put it positively, you should be seeking to advance in that knowledge. If you're not, then there's a problem, but you should be seeking to advance in that. And there's no end to that. Or if you picture it like a well, there is no bottom to that well. There is no top to that tower of reaching into the knowledge of Christ. I don't know how I can explain it. It's like, you know, if you're, I was just thinking of an academic illustration. If you're in a math class, there's almost always another math class after that, right? Ask Josh about that. You know, there's, there's geometry and trigonometry and a pre-calculus and calculus 1 and 2 and 15, you know, and differential equations and all that sort of stuff. And then all kinds of branches of mathematics from there. There's always more. That's, a, that's in a kind of finite, limited, you know, domain. But with Christ, there's never any end. There's always more. There's always more of knowing him. There's always more. I mean, to... to to try to know the depths of Christ, to know him. I mean, it passes knowledge, that dear love of thine, Naomi sang just a few minutes ago. You cannot fully grasp him, but Paul's idea and desire is to know him. He wants to know Christ. He also, as part of that, he wants to know the fellowship of his sufferings. That is a bold statement right there. This means to know or experience and share in the sufferings of Christ, not in the redemptive sufferings of Christ. Those are done and over. But Christ as a head of a people, namely the church that came after him throughout all of history, there's a certain amount of suffering that he and his body have to go through in order to reach the fulfillment of God's will at the end of this age. Now, I don't understand that. Frankly, I'll just say it like this. Humanly, I don't like it. But you know what? I can also say, but God, your will be done. Not mine, yours. So if we have to suffer uh, in, 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 internally, externally, persecution, health issues, uh, disputes, you know, doctrinal divisions, uh, if we're doing this for the Lord Jesus Christ, if we're living for him, we're going to Suffer. It's been given unto you, to you, not only to believe, but also to suffer for his sake. All those that live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Doesn't sound like a prosperity gospel to me, does it to you? 
to know the fellowship of his sufferings. The idea is you know Christ better if you have experienced righteous suffering because that's what he did. That's, you know, if you suffer for, for being a dummy, that's, that's the paraphrased version of Peter, okay, then you deserve it. But if you suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are you, blessed are you. It's, it's good before, don't be ashamed about that, about suffering. I mean, Paul, you know, it's kind of a shameful thing to be sitting in prison. You know, what'd you do to get there? Well, Paul doesn't have any shame. And he says, Timothy, don't be ashamed of, of the testimony of the Lord or of me, his prisoner. I'm here suffering for Christ, filling up the measure of that suffering that has to happen before the Lord returns. Persecution against Christians amounts to that suffering of Christ. Remember Paul was told, why, why, why are you persecuting me? He was persecuting the church. That was touching the apple of Christ's eye. Paul does not wish for a life of luxury and ease as we might in our flesh. His priority has changed so that he wants to know Christ in every possible way, in every possible way, even gaining an acquaintance with him in his suffering. We know that humanly, don't we? When somebody's suffering, you want to somehow identify with them. You want to enter into that, bear that burden with them, help them somehow. People who have cancer, who lose their hair, sometimes their friends shave their heads too to show a solidarity. They're entering into the suffering, a little bit, of the person who is not well. And so Paul is saying that. We want that. We want to have the fellowship, the sharing in his sufferings. And then thirdly, this is under this major change in priorities of knowing Christ. He wants to know Christ by being conformed to his death, being like him in his death. That is, both in the character that drove Christ to that sacrifice and the purpose for which he did it. Now, I spoke on this at a little more length last time, the end of the the message. But I can just say it again this way shortly. Therefore, like to be conformed to his death, we ought to be obedient like Jesus was. Not my will but thine be done. Okay, He submitted his will to the will of the Father. And to have a love like he had... This is what to be conformed to his death looks like. We are willing to die for the Lord, take up our cross daily and follow him. We uh, love like he loved for his people. There's, you know, a greater love has no one than this, than what? He laid down his life for his friends. That's to be conformed to the death of Christ. And then also, and this is where I focused last time, to be conformed to his death means to be like what he wants us to be like as a result of his death. He died, he gave himself to redeem for himself a people zealous of good works. That's why he died. So you're going to sit here and say to me, I'm not going to do that. That's not a good attitude. You ought to say, if he died for me to live righteously, then that's what I'm going to do. Whatever I can do to make sure that happens and have God's work work in me, that is what I'm going to do. He died to win me out of the mess of this world. I'm not going to go wallow in that thing more and more and just say, well, I can be forgiven. And it's here that the power of his resurrection comes in. You you and I are people who have a real problem with sin. Some of us have, and uh, uh, maybe I could say all of us have, some kind of addictive, addictive personality when it comes to some kind of sin. And you say, I can't, I, can't, I can't change it. It's one of those immutable characteristics. No, it's not. When the power of Christ's resurrection operates in your life, any mutable characteristic can be changed. Well, he's not going to change you from a Gentile to a Jew. He's not going to change you from a, Je- a Jew into a Gentile, whatever. Those immutable things will remain. But anything that can be changed, like that addictive personality trait that you have, like that tendency that's sinful... He can change that, just like that, with his power. I'm not saying it happens overnight, necessarily. Sometimes it does. Sometimes you, see, you hear amazing stories about people who get born again, and all of a sudden their drug addiction is gone, gone, gone. Other people struggle with that for years, you know. But the power of his resurrection. First of all, note the resurrection is a historical event. It really did happen in real life. In real life, 
I think sometimes we kind of get it to be an, it's an abstraction, you know. Uh, or it's almost like the liberal theologian who says, yeah, Jesus rose up in our hearts. You know, it was such a nice thing to think about him as if he were alive. But he's dead, but we think of him as alive. No, he's really alive, alive forevermore. He's the one who has the keys of death and of Hades. He's the one who died and lives forevermore, Revelation chapter 1 tells us. The tomb is empty. There is no, there can be really no historical, credible historical argument against the crucifixion of Christ and for me, the resurrection of Christ as well. I mean, you have eyewitnesses beyond eyewitnesses to this event. Now, the resurrection of Christ was an amazing demonstration of God's power, but what's less understood today is that that same power operates and is continue, continues to apply to those who truly believe. Paul says so in Ephesians 1. I left the verse there in the notes for you to look at. The granting and maintaining of regeneration life requires such divine power. The only reason you desire the things of God is because God's power is at work in you. It worked and it's still working to overcome the, the, the perversity of the sin nature that was in us and still is in some measure. That requires divine power. Spiritual growth, purity from sin, understanding the word of God, developing Christian virtues, obeying God's commands from the heart all require the power of God. And I think some of us have grown so accustomed to that operating that we forget what it is. We, we lose sight of the power that's at work in us because for you to be here believing the words that I'm saying from this book is an evidence of the work of God's power in your heart. I mean, the, the difference between the, the, the 2022 version of you and say, you know, if I'm looking at our brother, the 1970 version of you, take that and this and you say, how did he get from here to here? Well, he didn't, you know, just kind of gradually evolve into that. No, there was a special creative work of God in his life to make him like that. That's the power of God that initiated salvation and that continues it. If we just realize what God is doing in, in, in us, that he's working and he will continue to work, you face a temptation and you say, I can't handle it. You can't handle it. God can handle it. And he can use you to handle it. Unless you say, well, nah, yeah, his power is clipped, it's cut off, it's muted, it's attenuated. His, his power isn't enough for that. Oh, yes, it is. I found it in my life, and I, I know many of you have found it in yours, and you keep on finding it. All of these things that God does require divine life-giving and life-sustaining power. Paul tells us that one of his highest priorities, his highest priority is to know that the, that power in his life, to see it work, to see it change him, to see it empower his ministry. You know, so going back to that earlier phrase where he says, I want to be conformed to his death, you say, that is, that is tough. I want to know the fellowship of his sufferings. How am I going to do that? The power of the resurrection in your life. That's how you're going to do it. The two are intertwined. If you want to be conformed to the death of Christ, the answer is the resurrection of Christ. Amen. The answer to that conundrum is the resurrection of Christ. By the power of his resurrection, you can be conformed to the purpose for why he died for you. It's somewhat of a paradox, but life and death are intertwined. If you want to live the Christian life, you have to die from your old life. You have to die to that sin nature. And that's where the power of the resurrection life of Christ can work in you. You must have death first if you want real life. Christ died that death for us so we could have eternal life. When we are saved, we die too, being delivered from the sinful life that we used to live. Your life runs not on lithium ion, not on lead acid, not on 120 volts plugged into the wall. It works on the power of God in Christ. Uh, fourthly, another major change in his outlook is this. Paul wants to attain to the resurrection of the dead. What Paul hopes for is to make it to the resurrection so that he too possesses it. Look at verse 11. If by any means I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. Now, he doesn't mean like we say today, by any means necessary, like pragmatism, like 
I'm going to lie, cheat, and steal until I get the, re- the resurrection of the dead. No, that's not it. He, 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 he doesn't know how he's going to get there. Whatever course of life my life takes, I want to get to that resurrection, that final goal of physical resurrection out from the dead. Now, we already possess one kind of resurrection. Right now, if you're in Christ, you have one kind of resurrection. Are you with me? You've been brought to spiritual life, out of spiritual death. Remember, the Bible says that we were dead in transgressions and sins, but you're made alive, quickened, made alive by God in Christ. That's, the, that's one kind of resurrection. But the kind we're talking about here is the sort that you normally think of when you use the word resurrection. That is a body coming out of the grave. What Paul hopes for is to get to that resurrection so that he possesses it. That's one of those things that's out there that I don't, you don't possess yet. Even the saints who have gone before us that we, we have spoken about here recently, even in our own church, they don't fully possess that yet because they're waiting for the rapture of the church, the resurrection of their bodies. They haven't received that yet in accordance with our understanding of the divine timeline of how uh, God's plan is going to work out. And Paul is hoping to attain to that. And so should we. By the way, the New Testament talks about two, besides that spiritual resurrection, it talks about two resurrections, the first one and the second one. Which one do you want to be at? Revelation tells us the first resurrection is those who are blessed. The second resurrection is for those who, uh, that's the rest of the dead who did not believe in the Lord. We don't want to be a part of that second resurrection, but in fact, either the first or the second, you will be resurrected one way or the other to either eternal bliss or eternal condemnation. I trust you will choose wisely to follow Christ. Now, the question is, is there uncertainty in Paul's mind about this? An Arminian theologian would say, well, he says, if I may, by some means, attain to the resurrection, maybe he's going to lose it. Maybe he's uncertain that he might not make it, you know, he might not make it at the end. But really what I think Paul's doing here is he's making a humble, again, a humble expression of his hope in the resurrection, which although is a certain hope, is one in which Paul recognizes there's no haughtiness appropriate. For us to go around and say, you know, I'm all right with God, look at me, I've believed in Jesus, I'm, you know, and you kind of have this kind of bold confidence, um, haughty confidence, I'll call it. We are bold before God, but this haughty kind of idea, not appropriate for us. The, the blessing of salvation ought to make us the most humble of people. We don't deserve to have the resurrection of the dead. We don't deserve to have eternal life, and we recognize that. I, I want to grasp onto that gift, but I recognize it's not mine to have, to like to, um, you know, inherently mine. It comes from someone else. It comes from our God. We recognize that, you know, Christ had to die for this. Paul's uncertain as to whether he's going to die himself in prison, at the hand of the at the mouth of the lion, or the hand of an executioner who chops his head off or whatever. He doesn't know how he's going to get there, but he's trusting that he will and be able to attain to that final state of blessing. That same power that works in us to live for Christ, resurrection power, will also work in us to bring us back after we die. The resurrection of Christ, the power of God displayed. And even though it was a powerful event, there is no way the resurrection will have any meaningful influence in your life unless you acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord and that he rose again from the dead. He did that in your place. Then Christ can live in your heart through faith and you can have that resurrection power. Maybe you're hearing this, maybe you're listening, maybe you're going to read these notes and you realize, I need to come to Jesus to be saved from sin and thus come to know his resurrection power. Indeed, would you please do that today? We invite, we urge. It's the only reasonable choice for you to make. I mean, if it is the case that God sent Jesus 
from heaven to earth to die for your sins, what other reasonable response is there on your part? To just diss it? Trample him underfoot? No. Perhaps, though, you're living a life as a Christian, but you have some struggles with sin, and you're finding the resurrection power is hard to see or experience. Maybe it's because your priorities just aren't lined up properly. You know, There's your priority. Your life's priority is to know Christ. But if you're kind of off in this direction, I want to know this, I want to experience this, I want to do that, I mean, you're going to be veering off from the path that you need to be on. Have you abandoned your confidence in yourself? Have you had a major change in thinking about the value of your religious resume? Have you changed how you understand that God accepts a person before him, not by works of righteousness, but by his grace? Have you experienced and implemented a major change in your priorities, knowing that Christ is at the very top of your life goals? Have you gained a future outlook? In other words, are you looking to achieve the resurrection from the dead, or are you looking to achieve some lesser thing like a comfortable retirement? You know, don't do that. But uh, know Christ, because that is your highest and most important priority. You and everyone else in the human race, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that indeed we will have that highest priority of knowing Christ, like the Apostle Paul models for us here in chapter 3 of Philippians. God, spare us from the tyranny of anything less, from the lordship of anything less than the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us not follow after vain things, useless things, empty things, worthless things, but let us know him fellowship of his suffering, the power of his resurrection, being conformed to his death, and even to know the resurrection of the dead. In Jesus' name, amen.